0: Okay, and welcome to this edition of Science Audio Osmosis. Uh, This time we are going to be focusing in on the biology topic of ecology. Now, I'm going to take a different approach to uh, this episode. While there is the audio-only version that is available as an episode of my podcast that uh, can be listened to on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, There's also a video version uh, that's available, uh, embedded within the assignment uh, that I gave on Google Classroom. So if you would like to watch uh, as I go through these PowerPoint slides and and visually see what's going on, I encourage you to watch that. Otherwise, you're welcome just to listen to the audio-only version. So ecologist. Um, Ecologists study relationships. Ecology overall is the study of living organisms, how those living organisms are interacting with each other, and how the living organisms interact with the non-living environment around them. Ecology is a massive topic, and we're only going to scratch the surface here now the thing with ecology is it depends on different levels of organization we will start with a single individual and then move out into an entire ecosystem and at each level of organization has its own unique properties so we start with that individual person that individual organism The individual living thing Uh, for example in a swamp ecosystem an individual living thing might be one single alligator all right that is an organism that's the base level of any ecosystem is the individual the organism then we have a population a population is a group of the same species that are living together in an area again in a swamp situation maybe it's all the alligators living in that particular swamp, now we talk about populations in terms of humans all the time, the human population of the world, the population of the city of Lancaster, the population of the state of Ohio. Uh, this is a census year. Everyone every ten years, we have to do the census to get an accurate count of how many people are living uh, in each city and town and state uh, in the country uh, that's where we 're counting the population. So a population is a group of the same species that lives in an area. A community is all the different living things that are living and working together in an area. So not only is it the alligators in the swamp, but it's also the birds, the, um, the plant life, the fish, everything that works together that's alive um, in an ecosystem. That's the community. Now, the ecosystem itself not only includes the community, which is all the living things, but also the non-living aspects, climate, soil, water, rocks, all the non-living aspects of an area and how they interact with and um, function as a part of that system. And then finally we have something called a biome and a biome is a major regional or global community of organisms you can think about it as multiple ecosystems working together so you see we have this this level of organization that starts off with the single individual the organism and works its way up to a population a community an ecosystem and finally a biome each one of those circles getting wider and wider and encompassing more and more things now one of the key aspects to ecology is research and we tend to think of scientific research as being you know done in a lab somewhere doing experiments with test tubes Uh, even in a lot of biology studies we're dealing with animals we're dealing with uh, plants we're you know experimenting with different things in a clean environment Uh, ecology is anything but a clean science Uh, ecological studies are very dirty Uh, if you're an outdoorsy woodsy kind of person uh, this is the type of science that's for you observation is one of the key uh, aspects of an ecological study Uh, really what ecologists do is they watch and that sounds silly but they watch as uh, animal populations migrate um, as certain aspects of the environment are changing now we can do a couple of different surveys uh, in ecology there are direct surveys for easy to spot species Uh, for example things like um, you know animal movements we can watch as animals migrate as birds migrate from one area to another indirect surveys on the other hand are used to track things that are difficult to see Um, so maybe you're looking at um, The movement of nocturnal animals you can't really watch that during the night unless you have night vision goggles and all but you might be able to watch and see where their tracks were and where new tracks appear so that's an indirect survey so we have direct and indirect observations of different ecologies now experiments uh, in ecology are also a little bit different now, certainly we can do lab experiments, uh, which give researchers very much control over what's happening. But here's the deal. What we do in the lab is not very reflective of what's actually happening in the real world. And ecology is all about the study of the real world. So field experiments give a much more accurate picture of what and how things are happening, how the different animals and organisms are interacting with each other. Um, Here's the deal though. With that comes a lot of uh, uh, out of control processes. So field experiments may not exactly determine uh, exact causes and effects and put everything in a nice neat little box like uh, a lab experiment would now oddly enough we can also use a lot of technology uh, to do research in ecology Uh, computer and mathematical models can be used to describe and model what could possibly happen in nature you know in the middle of this pandemic we're hearing a lot about computer models the models of, of how many people are going to get infected how many hospital beds are going to be needed in very much the same way Ecologists use models to determine populations of a given species. What happens if certain food sources are decimated? What happens if a new species is introduced? The computers take in all this data and then spit out graphs and charts and models to tell the researchers what could possibly happen. Now, just as we've seen with the models of the pandemic, uh, models can be wrong. Um, and models are only as good as the information you put into them, so while the models don't always give an accurate view, it at least gives us some kind of idea to go on on what's going to happen to a certain population or a species over time. Now, every ecosystem again includes both living and non-living factors, and we have special words for those we call them biotic and abiotic factors now biotic factors as the name might suggest bio biotic means life living so biotic factors are the living things these are the plants the animals the fungi the bacteria everything that's alive in an ecosystem is a biotic factor abiotic factors are things that are not alive the prefix a uh, in front of a word means without or not. So these are quite literally not living factors, abiotic factors. These are things like moisture, temperature, wind, sunlight, soil. Alright, so abiotic factors, things that are not alive. Now, the question always comes up is, what about something that's dead? We have a tree. It's a living tree. It's therefore a biotic factor in an ecosystem. But let's say lightning strikes that tree and kills it, and the tree topples over, and it's dead now. Is that now an abiotic factor, or is it still a biotic factor? It was once alive, but it is no longer. Technically, a dead tree would be still a biotic factor. Even though it's not currently living, it was once alive. Abiotic factors are things that were never alive. Again, rain, soil. And be careful on soil, because we hear a lot of times farmers will talk about the soil's dead or the soil's alive. Well, when we say that a soil is alive or soil is dead, what we're actually talking about is the biotic factors that are living in that soil, the bacteria and and the the microscopic organisms that are alive in in that soil. The dirt itself is not alive, never was, never will be so make sure you have that clear in your minds the difference between a biotic factor and an abiotic factor now ecosystems while they seem large and they seem like there's a lot going on they're very complex and one of the things with an ecosystem is you change even the slightest thing And you can topple the entire house of cards. Uh, It really is incredible. You think that nature is very uh, resilient, and it is. But you change one thing, and it could have huge repercussions later on down the road. So when we look at ecosystems, we're talking about something called biodiversity. And biodiversity is the assortment or the variety of living things in an ecosystem. Again, break the word apart. We have bio, meaning life, and diversity, meaning different types of. So literally different types of life. Now, when you think about different ecosystems, uh, I think we can all agree someplace like a rainforest would have more biodiversity than other locations, right? Uh, We tend to see biodiversity increase as we get closer to the equator. It's warmer there. Another thing that we talk about in terms of biodiversity and and ecosystems are keystone species. A keystone species is a species that has an unusually large effect on its ecosystem. And we get that term, keystone species, because that's actually an architectural term. Um, If you ever look at a stone arch... Uh, in an old building, uh, uh, there's a, you, you see the stones that curve up to make the archway. And at the very top of the arch is usually a much larger stone cut at an angle. That's called the keystone. And it's actually that stone is putting out the proper amount of force and tension and pressure on the other stones to keep that archway standing up and, and from toppling over if you remove that keystone the entire archway is going to collapse it's that stone is key to that structure hence the term keystone so when we talk about a keystone species what we're talking about is a species that's so pivotal in an ecosystem that if you remove it the whole thing is going to crash down and burn all right and a lot of ways humans are the keystone species in many environments not always but a lot of times we are so we can take a look at maybe a small ecosystem to get this idea Uh, let's say we uh, we go back to our swamp and let's say we have um, some beaver who have uh, built a dam so that those beaver who have built a dam they are the keystone species well how come well when you dam up the river, what happens? Well, the water backs up. So, what do you do? That increase, that creates a, a wetland system. All of a sudden, now we have an increase in fish population. Now we have increase in waterfowl, because there's an increase in fish population. What do the beavers use to build their dam? Well, they use sticks and and, and rubbish, right? And those things that are left over are great nesting sites for birds, So while we can look at the beaver and the beaver dam uh, as one thing in an ecosystem, the process of them creating that dam has actually created a a little ecosystem right there. Without those beaver, the fish and the waterfowl and, and the nesting sites for the birds, that whole little wetland ecosystem wouldn't exist. So they are the keystone species there. You remove the beaver, you lose all of that. Now, of course, when we talk about um, ecology, we're, we're talking about life. We're talking about living organisms. And we know that all life requires some source of energy. And we really hit on this at the very beginning of the year. Now we kind of wrap back around to it. And we know at the, at the very crux of it all, the main energy that all living things get comes from the sun. Right, uh, because we get our food from producers, from plants. And where do the plants get it? Well, through photosynthesis from the sunlight. That energy is coming from the sun. So producers get their energy from non-living resources. Again, namely sunshine. Producers, we call them autotrophs because they make their own food. Auto meaning automatic. They do it on their own. Um, So producers are autotrophs. Then we have consumers. You and I are both consumers. Consumers are organisms that get their energy by eating other living or once living resources. Consumers are called heterotrophs because they feed off of different things. So we have autotrophs. Those are our producers. Those are the ones that make the food on their own and then we have heterotrophs those are the consumers the things that feed off of different things now again almost all producers get their energy from the sunlight there are a few producers that live uh, deep in the ocean, your hydrothermal vents that do the process of chemosynthesis or um, making food from chemicals, but they're rare and we're not going to focus in on them. So let's just assume, for argument's sake, that when we're talking about producers, these are photosynthetic organisms. They're the plants doing photosynthesis. Now, how that energy moves. Uh, in an ecosystem from the sunlight to the producers to the consumers we can organize that into food chains and food webs and all these are are models that show how the energy flows in an ecosystem so a food chain is a model that shows a very specific sequence of feeding relationships all right so we go from grass to uh, rabbit to hawk Okay. So that is a very succinct sequence of events where the you know, the grass grows, it gets its energy from the sun, the rabbit then eats the grass, the hawk then eats the rabbit. So there are are clear consumers and producers there in a nice neat little chain. Now, understand that all consumers are not alike. We know that herbivores only eat plants. So there are Things like rabbits right, that are herbivores. They eat plants. Carnivores will only eat animals. They won't eat plants. Omnivores, that's you and I, we eat both plants and animals. Unless you are strictly vegan, you are an omnivore. Uh, detrivores eat dead organic material. right and uh, then we have decomposers Uh, those are like fungi Uh, now decomposers and detrivores they're the ones that are breaking down the organic matter into simpler compounds they're the stuff that breaks down the dead stuff we also have consumers that are specialists and they eat one specific organism or a very small number of organisms and when we have consumers that are generalists, they're consumers that have a varying diet. Again, for the most part, humans are generalists. Right? We have, a very, we have a varying diet. When we look at a food chain, we divide it up into different levels. And we call these trophic levels. And so we have primary consumers are the herbivores. And they, they're the ones that eat the plants. They eat the producers. Secondary consumers are carnivores that eat the herbivores. Tertiary consumers are carnivores that eat the secondary consumers. And then omnivores are ones that can be at different trophic levels in the food chain. And understand that food chains, arrows always point in the direction that energy is flowing. now a food chain is nice and neat and simple but we also have things that are food webs And food webs are much more realistic to what's actually happening in nature a food web shows a complex network of feeding relationships an organism may have multiple feeding relationships in an ecosystem so a food web emphasizes the different complicated feeding relationships and how the energy flows in different directions food webs are just that they're a web now we have water cycles and uh, nitrogen cycles in the environment as well not only does energy flow but also non-living material like water and nitrogen the water cycle sometimes called the hydrologic cycle if you're being scientifically accurate is the circular pathway of water on earth all right almost every living organism is mostly made of water Now, there's also a biogeochemical cycle uh, that is the movement of particular chemicals through the biological and geological parts of an ecosystem. The main processes involved, for example, in the oxygen cycle are photosynthesis and respiration. I only mentioned the nitrogen cycle. These are things that you probably learned about in junior high. Uh, It's not critical that you... Uh, No details of them here, even if we were going to be taking an air test, and thank goodness we're not, but even if you were, um, I I wouldn't hit on these very deeply because uh, the air test usually doesn't put a big emphasis on them. So, uh, you know, again, the oxygen cycle you have respiration in a living thing, we breathe out oxygen, uh, plants take in that carbon dioxide uh, that we breathe out. Do photosynthesis they put oxygen back out which living things then breathe back in so that's a nice neat little um, cycle for us you know we have the carbon cycle uh, going through fossil fuels and and photosynthesis and respiration and and these different cycles of these biogeochemical um, compounds uh, get to be very complex and we can spend a lot of time looking at how these things are interacting with each other and if this is something that interests you I would encourage you to to maybe take an environmental science course uh, before you leave high school because um, they really get into the biotic and abiotic factors there so uh, you know nitrogen cycle uh, we have a Plants. We have the nitrogen in the, the soil, nitrogen in the atmosphere that cycles through different living things. There's also a phosphorus cycle that takes place at and below the ground. Um, we we talk a lot about the phosphorus cycle when uh, when farmers are putting uh, different phosphate fertilizers on their. Uh, their crops this can really mess up the phosphorus cycle in a certain ecosystem because they're putting too much phosphorus in that mining has a big uh, impact on the phosphorus cycle as well now not only can we look at food chains and food webs and all these biogeochemical cycles we can also look at pyramids Uh, an energy pyramid shows the distribution of energy among the different trophic levels So uh, I guess you can say that ecology kind of is a pyramid scheme at the very end of it because uh, at the very base of the pyramid we have our producers, our autotrophs, and each level we go up in the pyramid, we go higher trophic levels. We get uh, larger and larger animals. Now here's the deal. 90% of the energy That is contained in a certain trophic level is lost to the next level so in other words the producers of all the energy that the producers have only 10% actually makes it to the first level consumers and only 10% of that energy makes it to the second level consumers and only 10% of that energy makes it to the third level consumers So we don't see energy pyramids that are very high, because eventually the energy runs out. We're losing 90% of the energy. Well, where does it go? The atmosphere? As heat? It's wasted. It's wasted energy. We can also take a look at, at an energy pyramid in terms of what we call biomass. And biomass is the measure of the total dry mass of organisms in a certain given area. And we can think about this um, in an underwater environment. Think about all the the algae and, and underwater plants that are growing um, that are then fed on by small fish, that are then fed on by larger fish, that are then fed on by a human. So notice how the number of organisms gets smaller and smaller and smaller every time we move up a level. Why is that? Because there's less and less and less energy that's needed. And that really does it uh, for our study of ecology and the ecosystem.